Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. We have the legendary Ed Hyman who joins the podcast today. So for people who don't know Ed, uh, Ed is the chairman of Evercore ISI and actually the vice chairman of Evercore. He created ISI many, many years ago. The true talent of Ed is that um, he ranked an uh, institutional investor poll of Investor for Economics, ranked number one for um, for 40 years out of 45 years, which is just absolutely phenomenal. So Ed has consistently been on on, uh, on top of his game uh, ever since um, you know he started ISI back in 1991. So really a, a, a true talent, a true, true legend in, in economic forecasting and, and analysis. In the podcast, we delve into uh, Ed's history very early on at uh, CJ Lawrence, MIT and, and obviously ISI. We talk about uh, some of the key developments in the global economy during the 90s and, and the 2000s. And uh, we round off with a, a very interesting view on the global economy today and uh, as we move into hopefully a much more rosier 2021. Well, let's uh, dial in Ed now. Ed, uh, welcome to EFG's podcast. It's my, my pleasure. I don't know really what to expect here. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah, oh, it's. Uh, I think everybody who's come on uh, said it's been an uh, absolute, uh, you know, joy and fun. So, well, I'm I'm sure this is going to be uh, just like that. So, um, Tomas, Ed, thank you. thank you for having me. Not at and, all. And uh, I appreciate all all the work you've put into getting this set up. So, uh, I look forward to our time here yeah, not at all not at all so let's go into uh, um, into ed hyman the man um and the history um maybe ed you could tell us a little bit about uh, kind of where you grew up uh, and uh, how on earth did you fall into the dark arts of uh, forecasting the economy <laughs> well it's pretty easy actually so i i grew up in uh, west texas oddly enough and i went to the University of Texas in Austin and got a mechanical engineering degree. And so I'm, I'm very mathematically uh, oriented. And so when I went to business school, right out of uh, getting an engineering degree, uh, I picked MIT because uh, the business school is more quantitative. And that was really the sort of critical issue uh, for me. And when I was at MIT, uh, I studied econometrics and I had a job working uh, for a professor there uh, who was building econometric forecasting models. And at that point, MIT had produced the first uh, computer time-sharing database was you had the data in the computer, then I could log on to it from a remote uh, terminal. 
And so that's how I got uh, started. And then uh, a professor at Harvard named Otto Eckstein, who unfortunately passed away in his 50s, but he was uh, Council of Economic Advisors, uh, cover of Time Magazine, quite a figure, head of the economics department at Harvard. And he started a company called Data Resources, which did econometric analysis, forecasting, using a time-sharing computer. And so that was exactly what I had been doing. And so my professor at MIT knew him. And so I hooked up and I went to work uh, for Data Resources. Uh, and I've been doing you know, more or less the same thing ever since. Uh, let me stop there for a second. Miles and see, because I have some other things I could mention in this space, but let me see if there's any, if you would like for me to carry on in this particular dimension. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, a lot of things about your work now kind of make a lot of sense, to, I'm sure, to a lot of people in terms of your your uh, you know, your very, very famous um, uh, you know weekly wrap-up, uh, which is always scrawled with... Uh, with uh, with your comments on it, and I, I'm not even sure how you do that today, given the technology has changed so much. Presumably, you did it by fax at that point <laughs> uh, in the, in the very early days. But how? Uh, and and I guess one of the things that, um, if I may say, you're a master of is being able to take very complex sort of econometric, uh, econometric models, for example, and just making them sound and look very simple how did you pick that up was that from the early uh, early stage at, at um, no, uh, harvard or mit or was that really you know uh, at cj lawrence which you subsequently joined so it, it really started uh with being at data resources so-called dri uh, and otto Eckstein was a a great communicator and like you mentioned, Moss, he could make complex things uh, understandable. And my job was to work with the clients of data resources, uh, showing them how to use econometric models. So for example, I would help them develop a forecast in our econometric model for the economy, and then translate that into industry or company projections. So, for example, I was working, one of our first clients was JP Morgan, which was very uh, advanced in this space. And so, right off the bat, they threw me into working with portfolio managers. And so, my success or failure was being able to explain to a 50-year-old portfolio manager at JP Morgan uh, what we were forecasting and, and what it, what difference it made to him, and so that was uh, that was my experience uh, at the beginning, uh, and I I think it helped me understand the importance of explaining a complex uh, topic uh, to practitioners, and then uh, I went to work uh, for a client of. Uh, data resources, uh, C.J. Lawrence. And then it became even more important. Uh, I had to work with our clients, but first I had to work with uh, our analyst at C.J. Lawrence and explain to them what I was doing. And they were, you know, frankly, 
somewhat suspicious. Uh, and so I, I, I had to, you know, work as hard as I could uh, to explain. And we had a morning meeting. Uh, I think it started at nine o'clock. <laughs> Central <laughs> hour. Seven fifteen. <laughs> but uh, we had a morning meeting and we'd all get together in a room and we had to explain uh, each of us, uh, analysts and myself, that uh, Jim Moltz ran the firm was our strategist. And so at this morning meeting, I started bringing in uh, a chart or uh, a data, uh, a, a table of numbers, and I would circle on it uh, what I thought people should look at. And uh, one of our analysts uh, was working with one of our sales guys, and they said, well, you should take what Head is doing and sending that to our clients. And that's how I started uh, you know, taking a chart or taking a table and circling and putting a little uh, notice on the side of it. Uh, that analyst is still a very good friend of mine. Uh, he manages money and he puts out a, uh, a little newsletter for his clients. And you know what he does? <laughs> he circles charts and numbers <laughs> and writes a little thing on the side. Uh, but that's how I got started with that particular uh Thing and then the other part is that when I was at C.J. Lawrence, uh, we were a brokerage firm, and our biggest client was Fidelity, and the the and Fidelity was covered uh, by the second most important person in the firm, uh, who was head uh, head of sales, and so I could see right on the wall that. You know, I had to, in some way, impact uh, the salesman who was head of sales and Fidelity. And as you might guess, it's true today as it was then. Uh, it's a stock shop. You know, they do equities. And so it was hard for me to, in any way, relate uh, to their portfolio managers about what I was doing. So it even intensified the need to be able to explain uh, clearly uh, what I was doing because they were our biggest client. I had to work with them and the person that covered them at our firm uh, was the super, he was the number two guy at our firm. So that's how I, I got to, you know, knowing that I had to have a clarity uh, in explaining what I'm doing. So what year was that, uh, Ed? <laughs> Uh, I think it was, I forget it was 1948, 1949. It was, <laughs> it, was it was a long, it was a long ways back. It's probably, probably about 74, 75. Right. Uh, so at that point, uh, I figured out that the number one economist on Wall Street uh, was at Goldman Sachs. And so, you know, my job was to become the number one economist on Wall Street. So he was the guy I had to go after and and he had a his most popular product was a thing called the monthly uh pocket chart room pocket chart room well it got to the point where there was no way you could put it in your pocket i mean it was like 50 pages long and so i figured out well that doesn't work so i better do a weekly at that point monthly was the frequency and uh, and the rest is history. You know, went to weekly, and then 
uh, fax came along, uh, but fax is expensive, as expensive uh, as uh, sending it by, by mail. Uh, and then email came along and we went to a daily report, which is where we are now. And actually we do two days, two reports a day, but that was sort of the, the sequence of it. And now pretty much every, everybody's, you know, it's just a constant flow of like drinking from a, a fire hydrant. Uh, the data that comes out is analyzed so quickly, so well, frankly, uh, you have to adapt to that. So um, one of the things that um, uh, that is just hands down impressive is that uh, you've been ranked number one um in the uh, um, institutional investor polls for economics for uh, 40 out of 45 years, which is just absolutely, you know, uh, amazing record. Um, how do you, how, you, how did you manage to do that? And I'm just intrigued. Like, uh, can you remember the guys that beat you those five years? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I can. <laughs> Gary Winglowski. <laughs> so, uh, Gary happens to be a, a really good friend of Lee Cooperman, right? Who's still, you know, a major factor, yeah. and he and Lee are, are best best friends. And uh, after Gary found that couldn't be number one, he sort of retired, <laughs> and he's been more or less sailing. And every now and then, I get a caustic email: "Are you still working at?" Because <laughs> he's now retired and and sailing around the really around the East Coast, uh, but. Uh, the, uh, you know, for, for, for you, Miles, and for me, a lot of what our success is due to is luck. Uh, so, you know, I went to MIT and I had this wonderful experience, which I'd like to talk about a little bit more. Mm. But, uh, and then that led me to data resources. And this guy, Otto Eckstein, was phenomenal, very articulate, a very nice guy. Uh, very successful, and he introduced me to Jim Moltz, who's like a father figure to me, and I so admire him. I still see him a lot. Uh, so I was lucky to work with those people, uh, and Jim Moltz had developed a great group at C.J. Lawrence. Uh, but then as time went on, uh, we were acquired by Deutsche Bank, and you know that didn't seem like like you, I like building a business. And it was hard to see, you know, building a business at Deutsche Bank. And so with uh, Jim's blessing, a group of us uh, about, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, uh, set out to form a, another company uh, called ISI. Uh, and uh, that's, that's worked out well uh, for about 20 years. And it just we were mainly macro, uh, and then by luck, uh, we started adding analysts. But at every step of the way, uh, we had decided we wanted to be the best at whatever we did. And so we couldn't hire the best. But then uh, they separated banking and research. And at that point, we could hire the best. We started hiring a few analysts. And uh, that's gone well. And then about five years ago, uh, we hooked up with Evercore. 
and they have the same culture that we have and they like the idea of having the best research team uh, with what they think is the best banking team and and so that's been a great marriage so i basically had three careers and all of them to me seem to be just <laughs> good luck uh, i'll give you an example of bad luck so just before or in the transition to being acquired by Deutsche Bank, uh, we sold the firm C.J. Lawrence to Morgan Grenfell. If anybody remembers that name, it's a, yep. a great British banking firm, yep. uh, merchant banking firm, and so we sold it for cash, the whole thing. And the the players there were terrific. And uh, the day after the deal closed, five of the top people were indicted for insider trading and barred from the industry <laughs> for life. <laughs> so that did not work out well. Uh, that was not lucky. And uh, so then uh, Morgan Grenfell was in trouble and um, Deutsche Bank bought them and in the process happened to buy a much smaller firm, C.J. Lawrence. But that's that was unlucky. But my other things have been lucky. Absolutely, I th I remember that. Um, obviously, I was I was very young at the time, but it was a uh, it was a, a huge, huge deal, huge issue uh, for <laughs> right. Then obviously, Deutsche <laughs> came in to save it. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were in a state of shock. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, because it seemed uh, so so good. Yeah, and so um, so you came out of um, um, you know C.J. Lawrence uh, um, at that time. Uh, describe how you decided to to set up ISI because obviously um, your longtime friend and colleague was obviously Nancy Lazar. You you, you both kind of left at the at the same time. Uh, maybe describe how that um, that you know the thought process behind what you're doing at that time. So again, uh, Mars, that was luck. Uh, so we we didn't leave. We were forced out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, I've been first at this wonderful firm, Data Resources, then at C.J. Lawrence, and now really without any, we didn't really set out to be acquired by Deutsche Bank. It just happened. And um, so I could just see that, you know, I wasn't ready to, you know, work for a big bank. Uh, and so... I went to Jim Moltz and I said, Jim, you know, and he said, well, Ed, I, I see what, you, what you're saying there. Uh, so I'll, I'll be happy to help you, uh, you know, set up a, a shop. So I, I worked out a deal with Jim that I wouldn't leave until he found somebody to replace me. <laughs> <laughs> and so now at this point, you know, my compensation was probably, you know, 80% bonus. So I was, I was exposing my bonus to Jim's good natured side that he would pay me my bonus whenever I left. Uh, but, but he did. And, uh, so I waited. And, uh, so then, uh, they found somebody, uh, and so I went into Jim, it, it was, the word got around. I went into Jim. I said, Jim, is it okay if I, you know, announced now that, that Nancy and I are, are leaving. He said, sure, Ed, I've already announced that Ed Giardini 
<laughs> is joining C.J. Lawrence. <laughs> so he swapped, you know, one ad for an even better ad. Right, yeah. And, uh, and that was the way that came around. And, and I've admired Ed, you know, ever since. He's a, I think he's a great uh, player in the business. But that was, so that was really, uh, I just, I had to go do something else. And, and that's what, what I did. Uh, and then once that started, uh, then we started to say, well, how can we be the best? And we said, we have to have political. And so we hired a, what I thought was the best political analyst. Uh, and then we hired a strategist. Uh, that was the best. We hired a technician and we kept adding each time what we thought was the best. And we added an energy analyst uh, who turned out not to be the best. So that didn't last very long, but we couldn't add any analyst because they were too expensive, but we got going. And that was the, that was the first, you know, uh, stage of our development. But I'd grown up working with, with analysts. And I remember so vividly, uh, one of my big wins uh, was again, going back to modeling. Uh, we had built a series at CJ Lawrence of company models, econometric models. And I had one for Caterpillar. And this model was forecasting a 10% increase in earnings. And our, our analyst, uh, who covered the industrials, he was forecasting 25. And so the director of research was, you know, breathing down my neck. <laughs> How can I be so different from uh, Al, Nels Al Nelson? And so I was talking, we had a price model uh, in the equation, uh, a price model of a price for uh, capital spending in the national income accounts. So I went to Al, I said, so I, I said, Al, I'm assuming uh, prices are up 8%. What, what, are, what are you assuming? He said, 20. And I fell on the floor. And, and that was how I discovered early on that inflation in the 70s was exploding. Mm. Uh, so ever since then, uh, you know, I grew up in an environment where I, I learned from analysts and portfolio managers. And so I couldn't, I was very happy uh, when we started to add analysts at ISI uh, because I started learning from them. And come to think of it, I didn't think of it until just this instant. The first analyst we hired was an industrial analyst, Dave Rosso. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've been learning from them uh, ever since. That's uh, certainly very interesting, being able to bring that perspective, which sometimes many economists miss, don't they? Because they, they get caught in these sort of, um, you know, in, in uh, I worked for the Treasury for a little while. Um, and um, one of my jobs was to to go and uh, interact with the, with the famous Treasury model um, and kind of figure out, um, you know, what the economy would do and so and so forth and, and various different forecasts. I was pretty much uniformly wrong every single year, <laughs> but being able to sort of bring in kind of real life and industrial prices yeah. makes a huge difference. So I wanted, Moss, I wanted to mention two things uh, that I would share with you. So when I was at MIT, uh, there was a famous a professor there named Jay Forrester, who developed a technique called industrial dynamics which was for a while thought of as a, a new form of econometric analysis. It, it, it didn't last, but 
it was a study of cycles. And so I, I learned that was my, that's what I do. I study cycles. And so because I studied so many cycles, uh, the Kondratiev wave came, came to mind and a Kondratiev wave, I decided was uh, two generations. Uh, so 1930, we had a couple of generations, maybe 60 years. I thought we'd have a, have a depression in 1990. <laughs> uh, so about that time I was uh, forming a family. Uh, I had our first child and I sold my loft downtown and moved uptown and rented, which was the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we have a depression. And uh, so that was one uh, sort of cycle that I, I got, I got it in, into. Uh, and then I also did a lot of uh, econometric work uh, on uh, forecasting port, port prices, hog prices. And uh, so that's, that's another cycle. It's a two, a two year cycle. Uh, so that's just some of the modeling work I did that I still feel that I'm basically a business cycle analyst with a very practical bent. No, absolutely. And that certainly comes through, come, comes across all of certainly our interactions and also all of your um, you know, published work, um, being able to sort of pick that out, which, you know, I'd say very, very few people are able to, uh, to articulate or produce a narrative as well as, uh, as you have, uh, over the years, I will say because because I will say, Miles, because you were candid with me about how, how your treasury forecasts uh, were, were coming along. So I, for a brief period of time, uh, with a, a fellow classmate from MIT, I, uh, we formed a um, a firm to speculate in hog prices, <laughs> and. Uh, we blew up. Yeah, I was going to say, how did that work out? <laughs> so that was, uh, I would mention one other thing because my experience with data resources and Otto Eckstein, he, he built a 200 equation model. Wow. And he was, a, he was, he was gifted at econometric analysis. And I learned a lot from him. But about the same time, uh, I went to a debate between Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman at MIT. And I was, I was blown away by Milton Friedman because all of his thinking was so simple, whereas Samuelson would explain things in multi-paragraphs. Uh, Friedman would explain things in three sentences. Mm -hmm. And so that's another sort of, I decided that, uh, you know, keep, keep it simple was not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. I, I still love that. The phrase, uh, I'm sorry this letter is so long. <laughs> I didn't have time to write a shorter one. <laughs> <laughs> well, often as, as you and I know, and uh, certainly uh, colleagues like Daniel and Stefan on our team know, actually making it, making it succinct is, is actually a real art and uh, few can do, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing, I guess, you know, going through all of this, you know, the most important thing is you have to be right. And, you know, if you're succinct, understandable and wrong, <laughs> that's maybe worse. Yeah, and true. so, and, and like you, like you say, you know, you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, but you have to always, you know, try as hard as you can uh, to have the right view and 
like your treasury experience. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to cover how many bad, bad forecasts I've made, but uh, you have to always, you know, keep going for exactly. that one that, that works. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, moving on just maybe a few more years further up the line um, and, and, you know, arguably someone who, who, um, who, who made everything far too complex and then ultimately blew up and uh, LTCM, um, long-term oh capital gosh. management in, in, in the kind of late nineties. Um, what, uh, and I'm kind of always intrigued, you know, because I think that's kind of maybe the first time that we kind of met, uh, as were kind of around that time, but and started reading your work, what, um, what, what was going through your mind at that time? And, and how do you fork, obviously, you know, how do you forecast, um, uh, anything like that and the impact it will have on, on the economy? So, um, my, my master's thesis at MIT, uh, my second advisor was Myron Scholes. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the geniuses at LTCM and I had a couple other, you know, high level friends at that place. And so must for, for, for you and me and all of our clients and friends, you have to try and learn from every disaster. And uh, it's very clear what the mistake was. Uh, they had a perfectly good model. Uh, and then the world started to take advantage of it. And they, they increased the leverage too much. Uh, and then they became the, the market and the market then took them apart. Uh, so I can't think of any particular uh, situation I see right now uh, that has gotten to that extent. Um, but uh, certainly uh, that, that was the message I took away uh, from LTCM. And uh, uh, I think that uh, the players there uh, like Meriwether, or I think they were intrinsically modest, humble people. They weren't particularly arrogant, uh, but they just got wrapped up in trying to deliver results uh, that they could only deliver taking on more and more uh, leverage. So we have to, you know, make sure we're not doing that in, in my business and then in your business. And I don't think either one of us are, but that was what I learned from that. And then I, I, I was shocked at how close it came to taking the system down. And so maybe I'm not, maybe this call is, is a good reminder uh, to me uh, that the more uh, things get stretched, uh, something can come out of the blue like LTCM. Mm. Um, no, so the, the, ter the term anti-fragile um, I find attractive that uh, when things look great, like a crystal glass, they look great and they're strong, but they're very fragile. Uh, whereas when things are very complicated and they're swirling around, they're, they're really liquid and fluid. Uh, it's anti-fragile. And so with that, we can all decide whether we're in an environment right now that is fragile or anti-fragile. And it seems to me that we're still in an environment 
that is just fraught with uh, swirling uncertainties. You know, a new president in China, Middle East, uh, Korea, uh, stock market going up, and then QE. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen <laughs> there with the ECB now yeah. extending it? Yeah. And uh, fiscal stimulus and budget deficits and MMT. Janet Yellen, Jay Powell. I mean, this is this is anything but a crystal clear environment. I remember uh, when when I started my career, uh, the basis of data resources and the econometric model was to interpret what the forecast meant for different companies and industries. And then, I, then around 1970, 72, the world changed and you didn't know what the, what the forecast was. If you knew the forecast, anybody could tell what it meant. But the problem was that you didn't know what the forecast was, as opposed to in the first case, you had a forecast, you assumed it was pretty close to right and you tried to interpret it. And uh, I have to keep reminding myself that we're still in a very uh, fluid environment. And there are probably more outcomes available to us than we could cite right right now. So um, over the over the sort of course, certainly over maybe uh, since the sort of late nineties, and I remember reading your work, um, sort of ninety nine and post ninety nine when the bubble burst, the tech bubble burst. I think. Um, yourself and the firm were actually spot on on most things during that time. You already started to see the slow slowing down in the economy, and that obviously led to uh, the bubble bursting in uh, in two thousand. Are there any kind of parallels to that period to to today? Given those you know those high flying tech technology stocks today versus the the high flying technology stocks of that period? Yeah, I've, I've grown to really feel that. You have to have a viewpoint. And most things are always nuanced. Uh, but my view is that this we're not like the that period, you know, with a tech bubble. Uh, I'm not sure where it came along, but uh, I have developed a strong affection for making a list whenever I can see one developing. So we made a list of layoff announcements that were coming, you know, post the collapse in the economy, you know, this past spring. And we were getting like 20 layoff announcements a day. And that's almost stopped. Not hasn't stopped, but it, I mean, there's really slowed down. But right now, I've made a list of stimulus, stimulus initiatives. No one else is counting. But there have been 646 using ECB as a, you know, the one today to add to it. But back then, uh, we started a list of uh, dot-com bust. You know, and, and I think it got up to like the 400, hmm. you know, individual companies that you know, had, had gone bankrupt. And so you didn't have to be a weatherman to know that was probably going to have a, you know, a bad impact uh, on the economy. Hmm. I've also been uh, a big fan of the yield curve, and the yield curve had inverted uh, and I'm also a contrarian, uh, and uh, the great Alan Greenspan, who I deeply admire, uh, in the 90s, 95, you know, he had the famous irrational exuberance. Mm. 
Uh, but by 99, uh, he came out with the new era. <laughs> uh, so all of us are subject to <laughs> getting off on the wrong path. Yeah. Uh, but right, right now, uh, uh, I don't think we're into uh, an environment where most people think we're in a new era. I think they're scared of whatever era we're in, uh, but they're not really thinking this is, you know, like in, what's it, 1929, the famous Yale economist, uh, the day before the crash, said we're in a new uh, era of permanent prosperity. Uh, that was not a good <laughs> prognostication. No, it was to get it to today. Yeah, uh, I don't think we're we're like that. But you know, I I saw the news today. Help me with that. You got uh, three uh, IPOs with a total of about one hundred and twenty billion dollars, which is enough to merit your question uh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, with rates where they are and the QE. Um, I think it's, I think it's too early, let's say too early to leave the party, to put it in a negative connotation. Yeah, yeah. That at some point you got to leave. But. Yeah, no, exactly. I you know, certainly agree with that uh, with that point of view. So um, one of the sort of great things that have come out of ISI are actually your various spin-offs. So um, you know, Jason Trennett or or Jeff DeGraff or 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 even Nancy. You know, they gone off to 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 set up on uh, on their own do their own firms how does that make you feel it makes me feel great <laughs> so i was we we had a, a session uh at one of our conferences with uh, stan Druckenmiller, who's frankly my number one hero and uh, steve steve cohen yeah and uh, so stan was introducing interviewing steve and stan you know he's been enormously successful uh, was asking uh, Steve how Steve has a, I think 15, 1,500 employees. Mm. I, I could be off by several thousand, <laughs> no, not several hundred, but he has a lot. Yeah. And so Stan asked him, said, "Well, Steve, how do you feel when one of them leaves?" He says, "I feel great." He says, "I hope they had a you know a learning experience and they go on to have a good life." And Julian Robertson. You know, had the legendary, much much more successful than me with the Tiger Cubs. Uh, so I wouldn't even put myself in his category. Uh, but uh, I'd like to think uh, that you know all the people uh, like Nancy or Jason or Jeff DeGraff, uh, Francois, uh, you know, benefited uh, from working uh, with me. I certainly benefited from working with them. And uh, so, and I, you know, they've all, you know, helped me enormously. And so I, I, you know, I wish them the best. And I've been so pleased that they've all been successful. And Jason Trenner uh, really took our company surveys uh, and made them much bigger. We had the company surveys uh, starting at CJ Lawrence. And then we started building them and building them. And then we got him. They come over. Uh, he was a salesperson. And he started doing that, and then uh, he went to business school. He wanted to go to the next step of being an investment strategist. So he went to business school, and then he came back. and uh, Jim Moltz uh, mentored him 
uh, into becoming an investment strategist, which he was for us. And then he was so good, he wanted to go off and have his own firm. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very happy with the way that has worked out. So thanks for bringing it up. No, I think it, it, indeed it has. And, and Jason actually was, uh, was on the podcast um, earlier this year, actually, um, uh, Ed. So, uh, um, and, and actually Jeff as well. So we, 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 we certainly do keep in touch with the, with the ISI alumni. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, makes me feel good. Um, so let's, let's talk about today. Um, you've now got, you know, got a wonderful, wonderful group of analysts, um, um, all, all kind of working through, you know, really well. What is, and, and you have your kind of famous morning meeting. Obviously I've, I've had the pleasure over the years to, uh, to attend that morning meeting and, and you're always, uh, very kind and very nice to, uh, to put, uh, the people who attend, uh, in the hotspot to, to give some observations. Um, uh, any kind of very memorable observations from those morning meetings that you can share with us? Well, they've been, uh, a real backbone, I think, uh, of our firm, because when you have a research meeting, uh, and you have outside guests, then suddenly everybody has to, you know, sort of be on their best behavior and try and really contribute. And so uh, this morning, well, oddly enough, uh, we had Lawrence Kemp, uh, who runs a big portfolio at uh, BlackRock. It's a, a, a uh, tends to be a growth stock and an active manager. And so he's he's been doing very well. And then another uh, uh, fellow who works for Paul Tudor Jones, Macro, Macro, and then the great Byron, Byron Wien. Mm. And, uh, and Byron was not negative, but he was probing the dark side of things like, you know, the, the evaluation of the market uh, and you know, what happens to QE, uh, how about Georgia elections? Uh, so it just reminded me that uh, I don't think we're yet in a euphoric phase, but they've just been a, a very good uh, aspect. Uh, but I can't think of any like uh, lightning rods that went off uh, <laughs> at any one point in time. You know, a couple that have been in my career uh, was the after uh, Black Monday. Uh, I was going over to a, a meeting at Fiduciary Trust on Tuesday. And the salesman on the way over uh, said, yeah, I, you know, do you think I should take, I should take money out of the bank? Should I close my bank account? <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, I really hadn't thought of that. <laughs> that's what, that's where you get a run on the bank. And so then I go over and we're having a lunch meeting and, um, the great, uh, and my dear friend, Jer Jeremy Biggs comes in uh, around one o'clock and said, Ed, they closed the market again. <laughs> uh, you're going to hear a, heard a pin drop. Uh, and then another one I had in your town in, in, in London, I was over there, I was probably, you know, 36 or something. And I'm talking to a, a portfolio manager, which is really what I enjoy doing. And, uh, so I'm going over my, my view, which I forget what it, what it was. Uh, but he's sitting there looking at me and he's looking as is often the case. 
and at in that point a quote quotron while watching the market and so i was a little bit into my position and he looks at me he looks at the quotron he points his hand at the quotron he said ed look you're wrong <laughs> i i was jet lagged and i said i think you're right <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much the end of that meeting. Yeah. And then my other one, I was when Trump was elected. Uh, I, I, for about 15 years, I've been giving a presentation to a group of about 200 in Tokyo. And to make a long story short, I had it all laid, laid out, and then uh, Hillary lost. And in the course of like eight hours, I had to come with a whole new view. <laughs> But I was also completely jet lagged. <laughs> I had to present that view at two uh, thirty in the morning. In some way, I got through it. Excellent, great, uh, great stories. Um, so let's let's move on to uh, to, to to today. We've got um, markets. Um, obviously, have have moved ahead of fundamentals. I think it's fair to say um, they were expecting the economy uh, to to really accelerate next year and earnings to accelerate um maybe um your thoughts on you know, maybe this quarter next quarter for for you know gdp and um and how do you think uh, you know 2021 and uh, and beyond transition yeah, okay so you know because you and i are such a long-term uh, friends here i think the market is reflecting i don't think it's ahead so earnings in the second quarter, S&P earnings uh, at an annual rate were $112, say $110. That was down from 170, rounding slightly, just to make the point. It was down a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and now in the third quarter, which is over, they're probably at 155 and probably 165. Uh, so if, you, if you'd have told somebody, Back in March, that earnings were going to go from 110 to 165, uh, they might have, might have thought it was an up market. Uh, and then uh, I've been blown away by this uh, quantitative easing. And you know, ECB just came out with another load. Now we're going to keep it up into 2022 and keep a negative 100 basis point rates. Um, on the deposit facility. So anyway, uh, you have that. Uh, so I can sort of see how the market, you know, might be, you know, doing okay, but that's not your question. So uh, the third quarter had a big bounce back, uh, which is extremely important to understand. Uh, it bounced back because we opened the economy. Uh, say, housing stopped. Uh, Auto sales stopped, uh, restaurants stopped, uh, and then they came back to a certain extent. Uh, and you had this, if you annualized it, it had a big rebound. And so that's likely to happen uh, sometime next year when you get the vaccines. Now, my dear friend Byron Wien was saying he didn't think people were going to take the vaccine, which is a risk. Uh, but I think, you know, everybody will take it. Uh, I think I'll take it. I think you'll take it. 
and then our friends will see, and then George Clooney will take it, and LeBron <laughs> James will take it, yeah. and Hillary Clinton will take it, and uh, Steven Spielberg will take it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm just going through my <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Donald Trump won't take it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think you'll get quite a few people taking it. But I think you know ne- next year uh, could be a you know if I had to pick, I think it could be a barn burner. Um, but you know, that's not, it's not a particularly provocative view, is it? Cause a lot of people think it could be, but you get a vaccine, you get all the monetary stimulus, you get more fiscal stimulus, you get a little tranquility, uh, with Biden, uh, versus Trump. And maybe the dollar keeps going down. So you have a wind in our back, uh, on that front. Uh, so I think you could, you know, see, you can see 10% growth or something in the second half of the year. But you know, at this point, the market's beginning to discount that. So, so I find that's the biggest problem right now is the market's so high, not necessarily overvalued, it's just so high that anything could, like if, say, you know, Mitch McConnell was to get uh, the coronavirus. I mean, the market could go down 10% on that alone. Because it would, you know, then bias the blue versus red outcome, or if uh, Korea was to shoot a missile in Japan or something in the Middle East. Uh, at this point, there's so many things that could happen uh, that could uh, create, you know, an air pocket in the stock market. But uh, at the at the at the moment, I'm I'm going with the. Um, stimulus in the system, the monetary stimulus, which keeps going. And it's, uh, for, for me, it's, uh, it's almost 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and in one hour, they will report consumer net worth. Uh, and it's for the third quarter, it's exploding. And uh, there's an article a day on CNBC that consumers have got an extra trillion dollars in housing wealth. So our econometric work, going back to what I did at the beginning, our econometric work uh, indicates that consumer net worth leaves the economy by about a half year. Uh, so that's going to be impacting about the same time you get the vaccine and fiscal stimulus. Uh, so you could get a pretty good uh, lift in the economy uh, out there. But again, I think everybody knows that. It's just a question of you know, how much they want to lean in on that uh, with the market up so much. Mm. So what tends to happen? So, you know, often what we find with analysts is that they, you know, they usually undershoot or overshoot, right? So it's always, it always seems to be uh, the case, but probably more overshoot in the downside and overshoot on the upside. But but how do you think the 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 economics world? So so your your peers in the industry, do you think they are too optimistic or too pessimistic relative to your view at the moment? Uh, they're, they're too pessimistic uh, because I'm putting enormous weight on the stimulus. Again, I've, I've counted 647 stimulus initiatives in the past year. Mm. So it could be uh, like a rate cut by Indonesia or fiscal stimulus in Japan. Uh, so I just think there's more stimulus uh, in the system uh, 
than most people. And one of my first uh, meaningful encounters was with uh, the don't fight the Fed. And that seems to me to still be pretty, pretty, pretty good. But I also think that people underestimate what happens uh, when you when you shut down or open up an economy off a pandemic. So I learned that mainly uh, from China in the first quarter and applied that to the U.S. Uh, and I was way too aggressive. I had minus 50 for the second quarter. I remember. Uh, but, then, <laughs> but, but then the, the economy opened up quicker than I thought. And so it ended up being minus 30. Mm. Uh, so so that's, that's sort of where I am. I also uh, spend a lot of energy uh, trying to figure out what's discounted. And we just got our hedge fund survey yesterday, weekly, and it decreased a little bit, a tenth, uh, but it basically is neutral. It was defensive, not bearish, defensive, and now in the past three months has moved out to a fairly clear move out to uh, neutral. It's 50, uh, but back uh, before the Great Recession, uh, it would get to 60 uh, when people really got, got bullish. So I don't think we're in a euphoric phase uh, yet from my uh, vantage point. Mm. But I will say, because my sales team has, has pointed it out to me, I've changed our forecast more in the past nine <laughs> months than I did in the previous nine years. <laughs> <laughs> so, that... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind... The uh, Martin Biggs was one of my best friends. God, God bless him. And uh, he introduced me to the foxes and hedgehogs. You know, the hedgehogs are the guys that get a great view and stick with it. Uh, and the foxes have views, but they dart around. Uh, so I, I think the, the great investors do a little bit of both. I think you do a little bit of both. You have a strong view, but you're willing to change. And um, so that's, I, I'm, I'm always willing to, to change um, my view. Uh, and I think the, the path of the virus is a big thing. And I've been shocked that so far, the economy hasn't had a real air pocket because in the US, you know, the cases and the fatalities are going straight up. And uh, now kids are home from school and it's getting cold and I think it's going to get a lot worse. Uh, so I, I keep looking for an air pocket. It just hasn't happened yet. Mm. Yeah. I have to say that's, that, that's something that we've been looking for uh, as well. Um, but, I, but it's certainly so far the market is being able to kind of look through it and, and actually so the markets look through it, but also it, it also hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, that was going to be the other point I was going to say, is that uh, it hasn't really slowed. You haven't really seen that. I, I, obviously, I've watched your surveys very carefully. A slight slowdown, but actually not really anything meaningful just yet. So I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a biotech company. So he's, you know, that's his space. And uh, he's worth about a billion dollars. So he's been very successful at it. And I asked him, I said, why hasn't it impacted? He said, that is different this time. And he says, this time people know what they're up against. They don't, now they know it's not the, say, 
the Spanish flu. Mm. And they know that there's a vaccine coming and they know there's stimulus uh, coming. And so uh, they have China to look at, you know, the sort of leading factor. Uh, so they haven't freaked out as much this time uh, as they did back in, in March. And that, that, that may explain. But I still think it's going to, at some point, because I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, I still think you'll hit some sort of air pocket. But the longer we can go, the closer you get to uh, you know, the vaccine. Mm. And, and I, I really can't tell right now where, where we are on the vaccine. Because I read every day, there's you know, UK, and widespread uh, in the United Emirates and uh, Canada's, US is coming along. Uh, but I guess it takes you know quite a bit more before you stop a sort of panic in the system through the thing getting worse and worse. Mm. Yeah, so I, I guess it's a uh... It's kind of sh- short term. There could be, um, as you say, an air pocket, and then, um, and then, as we move forward, um, you know, things should continue to recover. And I think your your point on the second half of next year, I think, um, is is I fair to say is quite consensus in that, in that we're going to see this kind of very strong, uh, very strong lift uh, in the economy, given the the the, the very strong arguments you've made. Um, so let's talk about so some of the other couple of dynamics. Um, obviously, Janet Yellen at the U.S. Treasury. Any quick thoughts about that? Uh, she, we have to study it. She really feels strongly about income inequality. And the Fed uh, has what Krishna Guha, our central bank guru, uh, has the Fed double dovish. One, let inflation go. And two, get the unemployment rate back down to 3%. Because we found when it got down to 3%, we were actually helping the black, the Hispanic, the little educated, lower part of our economic system. And so she's all for that with Jay Powell. Uh, and so the Fed is, uh, is going to stay easy for a long, long time until you get inflation you know, over 2% for a while, until you get the unemployment rate, you know, back to 3%, uh, which is a long time. Mm. And I guess this is your, your, your thought process as well, that we're just now starting a new cycle, could carry on for, for, for you know, quite a few more years. Well, five or 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, yeah, certainly seems to be, uh, seems to be that way. Um, what about the impact of China? Obviously, China has been, uh, you know, pretty robust through through this period, and uh, I guess the only major economy that's going to have a positive GDP in 2020. Um, do you think they will be the first ones to 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 tighten policy, maybe sort of end of 21 into 22? Gosh, how could you argue against that logic, boss? I don't know. <laughs> so you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing so much because I'm working with people that know so much more about what they're doing than than I do. And we have a analyst, Don Strassheim, uh, who I've known since the seventies. And, uh, and he, he's talking now almost every other day about China starting to tighten. Uh, just like Krishna Guha is talking about the Fed staying easy, you know, for years to come. Uh, but for Don, it's really, the initial is just to stop easing. Uh, but I'll be watching that 
because uh, I, I do think one of my themes uh, is that China is leading. And so if they, um, you know, if they lead, uh, they should lead on the, on the central banking. So come to think of it, we could have a pretty nasty reaction in the U.S. stock market when China tightens. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that certainly is... A- because people will have a read-through pretty darn quick. Yeah, no, exactly. I I suspect that may be the the sort of the first, you know. Again, difficult to know when that will happen, and uh, we know that there's the the um, uh, the anniversary coming up uh, next year, uh, so maybe they won't want to do anything before then. <laughs> I I hope so. Uh, I hope I think Biden hopes so too. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so so Ed, conscious of time, and uh, you've been very gracious with with your time today. Um, one question that uh, we've asked everybody, and to be honest, Ed, we could probably keep, keep on talking for another two or three more hours. But um, um, the um, uh, the question, the last question I always ask everybody is, um, is uh, what could you have changed in your career if you had the opportunity to do a rerun? <laughs> yeah, I've been so lucky, like I mentioned. And um, I, I really can't think of anything I would change. Uh, actually, there, there's one thing I would change, but it has nothing to do with my career. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been you know, lucky with my business. I've been lucky with my family, uh, lucky with my health. And, uh, you know, like, like we all know, there's always, there are always people that are much more successful, genuinely successful, than you are or I am. Uh, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy uh, doing what I'm doing, and I'm I'm lucky because I can keep doing what I'm doing. I mentioned I we had Byron Ween in, yeah. and uh, a, a year ago we were we were having cocktails before dinner, and he looks at me and says, "Ed, I think I'm doing the best work I've ever done." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Byron, you you gotta be delusional. <laughs> I'll probably be delusional too. Uh, Anyway, uh, so I'm. It's been a good a good run, and I'm very happy with my partners now. Very happy doing this with you and having our relationship. And you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. Excellent. Well, that's uh, very 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 good to hear. And uh, you know, uh, it, it did remind me of that generation that you talk about hedgehogging. It reminded me of Barton Biggs' book. Called hedgehogging. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and I remember that reading. Gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, he and I became very close. Uh, you know, in the last you know fifteen years or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's a little giant. So, well, thank you so much for having me, Ed. Thank you. It's a wow. real pleasure. As I said, we. I, I know. I, I know you went through the you know the best people first before you got down to me. <laughs> no, not at all. Not absolutely. <laughs> not. We 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 we, we kept um, we we kept uh, you know, the best for the Christmas special. <laughs> okay, okay well, Thank you, Ed. Let's thank you very again. much. Pleasure. So that was, uh, again, a very interesting uh, discussion with Ed. Uh, we could easily have carried on for two or three more hours. There were plenty of other things I had on my list that I would ask him, but no doubt we'll, uh, we'll try and get him on again to talk uh, more specifically about uh, some sort of key areas 
in the economy or or even indeed um, uh, market uh, and market psychology. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for listening. Again, uh, uh, please drop us an email if there's a topic you would like us to tackle. The email address is beyond at fgam.com. So please do send us uh, a message um, as and we would always be happy to to answer them any questions you may have so um with that uh, we'll talk to you next week